Over the next couple of weeks, I will be speaking on really, I think, two of the most important topics facing Christians and the church as a whole. And I think that these two topics and how the people in the American church today respond to them, uh, how they choose to respond to Jesus' words will determine whether or not America goes uphill as far as Christianity goes or downhill. And I really believe that, that what we'll talk about over the course of two weeks will in some ways determine whether or not, you know, when I'm old man, I am persecuted for my faith or whether or not it feels more comfortable to be a Christian because there's been a revival in our country. And uh, this morning, uh, the topic is simply going to be, I'll just put it out there ahead of time, compromise. And as you look at, at the American church today, it seems that what has taken place in individuals' lives and kind of is the... Is in the organizations as a whole, is that that churches and their people have made a decision to look more and more like the world. And the the thinking, I guess, is like, well, nobody wants to, to come join us. I mean, statistically, the church, if you're not aware, is shrinking. And when you look at churches that are getting bigger, generally they're getting bigger off of smaller churches. And that's what the statistics tell us. And, and, and so churches are, are more and more like, well, we, we'll just compromise. We'll just look more and more like the rest of the world so that people will like us and so that people will want to be a part of us. And if it doesn't look any different than everything else a person does during the course of a week, then, then maybe they'll wake up early on a Sunday morning and they'll come do what we do because it's not that different and it's comfortable for them and it looks exactly the same. And the same thing is taking place in individuals' lives where people are going, well, it doesn't really make me cool. It doesn't really make me fit in. It doesn't make me well-liked to look like a Christian and so maybe I'll just, you know, kind of do some things that, that look a little bit less like Jesus and more like the world. And maybe I'll give in to these sins, but I'll really avoid those sins. But I'll just kind of give in to these sins. I'll, I'll tell people I'm a Christian if they ask, and I'll not deny Jesus. I'm still going to be a follower of his. But just in these areas of my life, to fit in or make more money or, or feel better about myself or whatever it might be, I will give in to these sins. And what's happened in American Christianity is that we've lost our ability to make a difference because we look so much like the rest of the world. Statistics, again, tell us that there is hardly a distinguishable difference between those who go to church and those who don't go to church. There is hardly a distinguishable difference between those who call themselves Christians and those who who don't? These statistics go, and you've heard this one, to marriage and divorce rates. They go into pornography. Uh, they go into business and the way that people run their businesses. It's just every aspect of life. There doesn't seem to be a distinguishable difference between those who are Christians and those who are not. What's happened is that we, the church, Christians, have compromised. We've said, well, we can be a lot like the world, kind of do some things that Jesus doesn't like, and serve Jesus. And sometimes we reconcile that by saying, you know, 
I would never, I would never deny Jesus. I would even die for Jesus. And guess what? I go to church on Sunday mornings and that makes me pretty good. But it doesn't matter what I do the rest of the week. I'm gonna give in to these certain areas, not the big sins. You know, I'm not going to be gay and I'm not going to have a, an abortion. But, but I, w- you know, this other stuff, like I'm, I won't give, I'll, I'll just kind of do that. As long as I avoid the big ones that Christians really like to talk about, then I'm okay. And what's happened is we just don't have an influence anymore. We've totally and utterly lost our ability to influence culture because we look exactly like the culture. Near late 1990s, it's weird to say, like I feel like it's the 1990s still, but in the late 1990s, two decades ago, uh, Apple launched a, uh, an ad campaign called Think Different. And uh, the most famous part of that ad campaign was, was this, uh, this paragraph right here. Here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs and the square holes, the ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules and they have no respect for the status quo. You can quote them, disagree with them, glorify or vilify them, but the only thing you can't do is ignore them because they change things. They push the human race forward. And while some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Oh, I love Apple. Isn't that good? Picture Richard Dreyfuss's voice and then hear that again and that would be uh, why they started selling a million computers. But there's truth in that. People don't change the world by looking just like the world, right? I mean, every genius has been very close to being labeled crazy. And there's probably a lot of crazy people who are very close to being labeled geniuses because of their influence on the world. And Apple's CEO before he died, Steve Jobs, you've heard of him, he was a man that walked that line always. And so this ad campaign fit the company really well because they said, I don't really care what everybody tells me to do. I'm gonna do things the way that I think is best. And Christians used to be this way. Christians used to say, you can do things however you want to do things, but guess what? I follow a savior named Jesus and I'm gonna do what he wants me to do and you can come along for the ride if you want to because this is the better way. And what we've seen throughout the history of Christianity is when Christians take that approach, revival starts. People become Christians. People are willing to change their lives. And what we've also seen is that when people don't take a hard stand and they can kind of look like the rest of culture, then nobody becomes Christians. The church starts to shrink. There's no revival. Spirituality wanes in America or wherever it's been in the world. And Jesus speaks directly to this issue to a church in Pergamum. He speaks directly to their inability to stand firm, and instead to compromise and give in to culture. This is how it starts in Revelation 2.12. He says, to the angel in the church of Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. Again, all of these sections of this letter of Revelation to seven different churches are specifically addressed to the angel, implying that each church has an angel that kind of interacts with them, that oversees them, that God works through. They are not to be worshipped, they are not to be deified, they are simply here to really serve us because God cares about us as a church. And he says that this angel is at this church in Pergamum. 
And Pergamum is an interesting town, and I want to give you the information as I've done each week on these churches. And if you don't like history and you're like, I don't really care, just tell me what I need to know, then, then this section of each sermon has not been good for you. But if you're like me, you like things like this. Parchment derives its name from Pergamum. That's kind of cool, right? I mean, the word parchment is close to Pergamum, not exactly the same, but somehow history tells us that that's where the name parchment comes from. It was a prosperous city and had 120 to 200,000 people. Think Salem if it was prosperous. I mean, that's about the size of the city that we're, that we're dealing with here. It was another city that had power and it rivaled the first two cities, Smyrna and Ephesus, that we've talked about in terms of power and prestige in, in the Asia area. Uh, it was the center of a small kingdom in its history. Like there was a kingdom called Pergamum and now that's not the case when, they, when we read this letter, Rome was kind of a big deal and Pergamum didn't matter. It housed a famous temple to Asclepius, the Greek god of healing, which was symbolized by the figure of a snake. And you may recognize this, the god of healing. And you've seen this maybe on an ambulance. And sometimes, this was just in my studies this week, there's two snakes. That's a different symbol, has no connection to my sermon today. But when you see the one snake, it's because of this Greek god who symbolized healing and therefore kind of makes sense for the EMTs to have it on their their ambulances right uh, it, they had an old temple of, of Augustus that stood on a lofty rock citadel and it was like the first thing you would see as you came into this city um, Anipus might have been the first Christian martyr we'll read about him here in the province of Asia and we know that Pergamum was the providential city capital of Asia Minor. Rome, Rome had given them the capital city label. And that means that they had, and this is important, the right of the sword, meaning they could execute at will. Where most people would have had to work with the Romans, through the Romans in Asia, Ephesus, Smyrna, and the other cities we'll talk about. They would have had to get permission to execute somebody. This city, Pergamum, could kill anybody. You see on our map here, that it is the third city, if you're kind of making the circle, and the letter is being passed around from one church to another, one, Ephesus, two, Smyrna, and then three, the letter would have traveled by horse or whatever to the city in, or to the church in Pergamum to be passed on to the rest of the churches, which we'll see had less influence. And so, going back to our passage, we read that Jesus has a, sh a sharp, double-edged sword coming out he holds the sharp double-edged sword. This makes sense. I mean, think about a person in a city where they can execute you at will. Persecution is starting to come down and you know that you might face death. And as we'll see in a minute, your friend Anipus had already been killed for his Christian faith. You think, wow, this city that I live in is so powerful, they can kill me. I mean, they have the power of death. They have the power to execute. And Jesus says, hey, by the way, I know that you think that your community has the power to execute you, but let me tell you who has the real power. Let me tell you who has the spiritual power of death. It's me. I hold the double-edged sword in my hand. I am the one who ultimately decides life and death. I am the one who ultimately holds the keys to hell and the keys to heaven, and I will determine who gets there. You see, this is encouraging. This is an encouraging thing. We think, wow, Jesus sounds kind of mean here. But man, when you're dealing with people over you that might execute, it's good to know that the Jesus that you're following is bigger and powerful and stronger and better and more important than the city official who might tell you you have to die at the hand of, of the executioner. 
We look at these things 2,000 years later in America, and it's like, man, if Jesus had a sword, I'd run. You're like, whoa, that, that's like, actually saw a guy walking down the road with a sword in his backpack the other day. I was like, that's weird, I noticed, right? It's, it's real. Um, I think in Salem, actually, go figure. And, and here, it's different. I mean, this is like, Jesus is better. And, and for us today, this is still important. I mean, when it comes to the topic of p- compromise, will I compromise, will I not compromise? Oftentimes, that's going to come down to, do I re- would I rather serve this or would I rather serve that? And, and that can be determined sometimes by who's more powerful. I mean, who is going to have more power, more authority over my life? If I said to you, you can drive 100 miles an hour on the freeway and I won't care. Not a big deal, right? I have no influence there. I have no power there. I'm not going to be able to get your ticket removed for you. But if a cop says it and the lawmakers say it, then all of a sudden you go, huh, maybe they changed the rules. And Jesus says, I am bigger and I'm more powerful. When you choose whether you're going to listen to me or to the world, you ought to choose me. And then he says this, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. Not even in the days of Anipus, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. This is not how you want to be described as a city. Like, no, you know how, like, cities, especially these cities, like to say that they're like an American city or a tree city. I think Sherwood's a tree city, you know, or like an all-American city. I think you can get that label. And I don't know what these things mean, but they're on the signs. Or home of the state champions. You don't want, hey, you're, you live in the city where Satan has its throne. Like nobody puts that on the sign. It's like entering Wilsonville, Satan has his throne here. Like that's not an exciting thing to hear. And, and man, if I had grown up in Pergamum, even if I was in the church, I would be like, man, you're talking about my city. I mean, Kaiser is like the meth capital of the world where I grew up and I still love the city and wouldn't want anybody to say that Satan has his throne here. But when Jesus said it, you have to pay attention. I mean, when Jesus says, this is the city where Satan has his throne, you're like, hmm. Maybe Satan has his throne here. And there's many opinions on what that exactly means. And I will give you some of them. And none of these can be verified. They're just guesses. But they're all kind of interesting. And maybe they all add up to be the reason Jesus says this. Uh, The city's geographical shape, uh, it, it had surrounding hills like this. So it actually kind of looked like a giant chair. So you had rocks on each side and then the city kind of down in the valley, a little lower point in the middle. And so it, it geographically looks like a throne. And so that could be part of it. And I'm sure that people had made that association before, like, that's a throne when I walk up to the city. And in the middle of it was Augustus's temple. And so it, it, you could see that. Uh, the Greek god of healing, Asclepius, as I said earlier, uh, was symbolized by a snake, as we just showed you a picture. And later in the book of Revelation, you'll see that Satan is symbolized by a snake. And so there's a correlation, there's a connection there. Uh, the reference could be to the monument of Zeus, which looked like a throne and had serpents involved in its uh, design, in its interior design work. And so it could be part of that. It could be a reference to the amount of false gods who were worshipped there. And so it's kind of a vague statement. 
could be a reference to that, that, that simply there's a lot of false gods, it's an evil place, it's bad. And it could be a reference just to the spirit of the place and, and a place that was the first to kill a Christian for their faith and, and Satan had gotten a foothold here and he was working through the local government to really persecute the church. And so you add all of this up and Jesus says it twice, if you notice at the end, it's where Satan lives. And, and we can't really guess that Satan literally lives in Pergamum. I mean, because that would be really good for us, like if he would never antagonize us, if he was never bothering us. But it seems to be a reference to the culture and the community there and how Satan had worked to tear down the church. All in all, we see that there's spiritually dark power in this community. I mean, Pergamum was a place that is labeled as Satan's home, and that means that it's pretty bad. And to be a Christian there is going to be pretty difficult. I mean, you don't just, it's not like, it's not like being in America and it's especially not like being in the South where it's like part of the culture, like, yeah, I'm a Christian. You know, at least in Oregon, we can get a little bit of glimpse of this because nobody feels pressured to go to church on Sunday morning. Nobody feels pressured to label themselves as a Christian. And so we kind of get it a little, right? And, and that's the, the magnify that to like infinity and that's what these Christians in Pergamum are facing. Yet, Jesus says to them, they didn't renounce their faith in him. They were willing in some ways to, to, to die for him. That word renounce means to deny, disown, to say no, to refuse, to decline. They were unwilling to say, yeah, I'm not a follower of Jesus. They held to Jesus. They told people they were Christians, even while one of their good friends, probably a guy in one of their small churches, I mean, we're a small church, it's like one of the people in our church being killed for their faith and us saying, I'm still not gonna say I'm not a Christian. I will hold to my faith. I will gladly tell people that I love Jesus and that I follow Jesus and that I serve Jesus. This is a pretty big deal. I mean, we picture it as American Christians as so far away, like, oh yeah, somebody died for their faith. Like, that's still happening, but it happens somewhere else. But like, just take one of the, look at the person next to you. And then think about, this is maybe weird, but think about them just being beheaded in front of you for their faith. And then somebody comes up to you and says, are you a Christian? That hits real close to home, Right? I mean, then you have a decision to make. And these people had refused. They had absolutely refused to give in. And what that did, like with Anapos, is we see that he becomes a faithful witness, a really, really important term in the book of Revelation. Christians are not described as people who go to heaven one day. Christians are not generally described as people who have just been saved. Christians are not necessarily described as born again. Christians are described as faithful witnesses, people who share the truth of Jesus with the rest of the world. And here's the thing about that. The word actually means, it's the, where we get the word martyr. And, and the root word is smri, which means to remember and to proclaim, to give evidence for something. Christians, a Christian's job, the way they live their life, the things they choose to do, our job is to say to the world, Christianity is true. All other religions are false. All other non-religions are false. 
Think about that. That's just, just, just pause for a minute. I mean, this guy died to make that happen, but just ask yourself, just in your heart, if somebody looked at your life, does the evidence suggest that Jesus is real? And there's a lot of ways we can see this. I think uh, we can see it in, in our morality, the sins that we give into or don't give into. And I think that's the easiest and the obvious. I mean, if you are just living like everybody else, if you're constantly mean to people, if you are, are adulterous, if you are, are looking at pornography all the time, if you are spending money like the rest of the world, if you are doing things just like everybody else, then what does that suggest? Suggests that Christianity's not real. But you can see it in the way we talk about Jesus. You can see it in the way that people worship Jesus. You can see it in how often people spend to actually spend time in prayer and reading the Bible. And if you think Jesus is real, then, then you should pray to him. I mean, if, if really you serve somebody who's holding the double-edged sword that determines hell or heaven in his hand, then probably you would spend time praying with him. And the truth is your life adds up and it suggests yes or no about Jesus. And there's probably people looking at you, whether at work, whether in your family, whether your friends, whether your neighbors, and they're looking at you, and if they know you're a Christian, then they're determining based on the evidence of your life whether Christianity is true or not. It's a very poor plan, in my opinion, with Jesus. I mean, like, I would go with signs and wonders. I mean, that's how I would have proved myself. But his plan to prove himself and his gospel and the fact that he died for the sins of the world true is how you live your life as a follower of his. It continues. And this is the nevertheless, and this is where we'll get to, because while they, in some ways, were not denying Jesus, they were actually not very good evidence of the truth of Jesus. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, I'll just say this up front. The teachings of the Nicolaitans are going to be very similar to that of Balaam, and we'll see why that's true in, this, in a second. But they're basically synonymous, probably separate groups that taught very similar things. Now, in order to understand Balaam, this wasn't actually somebody's name. In fact, whoever this is referring to, some false teacher, probably really, really wouldn't have liked being called this. And, and in our passage next week, a false prophetess will be called Jezebel, and we'll see how that's like not a name you want to name your daughter. And, and Balaam is not a name you want to name your son. If you were to go back in the Old Testament to Numbers 22, this is what you read. Then the Israelites traveled to the plains of Moab and camped along the Jordan across from Jericho. Now Balak, son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, and Moab was terrified because there was so many people. Indeed, Moab was filled with dread because of the Israelites. The Moabites said to the elders of Midian, the horde is going to lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. That is a sentence in the Bible right there.
Uh, so Balak, son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at the time, sent messengers to summon Balaam, son of Beor, who was at Pethor, near the Euphrates rivers, in the native land. Balak said, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the land and have settled next to me. Now come and put a curse on these people, because they are too powerful for me. Perhaps then I will be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that whoever you bless is blessed, and whoever you curse is cursed. So here, picture this. Israelites come out of Egypt, a story you may or may not know. They settled near the Moabites. The Moabites hear what they did to the Ammonites, which is utterly destroy them. I mean, the nation was just wiped out. And now the Moabites are sitting there, and it's the neighbors. It's like an axe murderer has moved in next door, and you're worried about it. Like, you hear what that guy did, and now he lives next to us. That's worrisome. And so Balak is like, let's go talk to this guy named Balaam. Because he is a prophet of God, a real prophet, it seems. And he is able to curse people by the power of God and bless people by the power of God. Good plan. But Balaam, while being a real prophet, it's one of the more interesting kind of difficult things in the Bible, in my opinion. While being a real prophet who has a real connection to God, doesn't seem to be a person who really likes God or cares about God or follows God or anything like that. And so Balaam goes to God and he asks God, should I go? Should I go curse your people? Stupid question. I mean, people say there's no stupid questions. That's a stupid question. Never pray anything like that to God. Like, hey God, should I commit this sin? Stupid question. Hey God, should I be mean to this person? Stupid question. I mean, it's just a dumb question. And he's like, hey God, should I do this? And God says no. But Balaam goes back and God in his infinite wisdom relents and says, sure, go ahead. He probably knew the heart of Balaam, that Balaam didn't really care what he had to say, that Balaam wanted to go to make the money, and so he lets him go. And then Balaam, in one of the funniest stories in all of Scripture, gets on his donkey, starts to go to the place where the Israelites are to curse them, and the donkey refuses to go, and then the donkey tries to go a different direction. I'm making a long story short, and so Balaam is kicking the donkey, and then the donkey talks to him. And what happened is that he saved the donkey, literally. This is a true story in the Bible. The donkey saved Balaam's life. I did a sermon on the donkeys of the Bible that you can find on our website, actually. It's great. I did it to youth group, and it's like one of the few youth group recordings we actually have. Uh, So go listen to that. It was fun. Uh, But that's the story. And so Balaam, after all this, still, still, after a donkey talks to me and there's an angel of the Lord and I'm going to die, I stop, I go back. But he still goes to where the Israelites are. And he realizes, it seems, at some point that he cannot curse them because they're God's people. But he keeps making an excuse. Like, oh, well, if maybe if I go over to that hill, then God will allow me to put a curse on them. And so he goes to this hill, and, he, and then he blesses the Israelites, and he curses the Moabites. And he's like, well, that hill was no good. Like, location matters to God. So he goes to another hill. Ten times he basically blesses the Israelites, and then he curses the Moabites who have hired him to, to curse the Israelites. It's a great story. If you don't read the Bible and you're like not an interesting book, go read Numbers 22 to about 24 and find that story because it's pretty interesting. It leaves you with a lot of questions, but it's pretty interesting. And then at the very end of all that saga, in Numbers 25, 1 through 3, excuse me, not Numbers 1, 3, uh, very end of chapter 24, we read this. He got up and he returned home and Balak went on his way. And it feels like a really weird ending. 
Because it's like, well, they didn't get the job done. But the next thing we see is really, really telling, and it's verified for us in, in our passage of Scripture today. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in the sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. See, what happened, it seems, is that as Balaam is going on his way, and he's departing from Balak, who's very, very angry with him, he says, look, I can't curse him. God's not going to do that. But if, if you want to beat him, here's how you can turn God's favor away from them. Here it is. Entice them into sexual immorality. They'll give in to it, and then God will turn his back on them as punishment, and you can defeat them. You see, he said, I can't beat them, but if you can get them to join you, then, then you have a chance to defeat them. And it happens. And we don't see all of that story between chapters 24 and the beginning of 25 in Numbers, but the book of Revelation in our passage today says that's what happened. He says, hey, there's a couple things you can do. You can get them to give in to sexual morality and you can get them to eat food sacrificed to idols which is blatantly disregarding the Old Testament law. And if you do that, then God's favor will not be upon them. The issue here is not food sacrificed to idols and it's not even sexual immorality. Because the truth is, food sacrificed to idols was not always bad to eat. Um, if you were to go into Pergamum and you were to go to a grocery store, the majority of meat or a good portion of the meat that you would have found there would have already been sacrificed to an idol and then would have been taken to the local grocery store so it didn't go to waste. And there was no way to decipher between food sacrificed to an idol and food not sacrificed to an idol. Paul, in fact, in 1 Corinthians 8, 7, and 9 says, some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat food sacrificed Excuse me, when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god, and, they, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled, but food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights has not become a stumbling block to somebody else to the weak. And so Paul says, hey, it's not about food sacrificed to idols. In Revelation, that's not what it's about at all. I'll tell you what it's about. It's about the trade guilds. And these people, and I talked about this last week, they, they had trade guilds. It was like being part of a union today. And the unions would have been over different jobs, and you would have had the same job as your dad, maybe a blacksmith, let's say. And the blacksmith union would have had family kind of feel to it. It would have had a fraternity kind of feel to it. It would have had a church kind of feel to it. And you would have been part of this, and it would have been your retirement plan. It would have been your health insurance, and it would have been everything that you kind of needed in life would have been wrapped up in being part of this trade guild, this union. But a big part of the trade guilds was having wild, wild parties where people sacrificed to false gods, and in doing so, when you ate the meal, it wasn't just like getting that same food at the local grocery store. It was saying, I am celebrating this false god. I am worshiping this false god. Now, put yourself in their shoes. I mean, your whole livelihood, 
Somebody comes up to you and says, if you're a Christian, if you refuse to eat this meal, you're not one of us, and we're going to reject you. You no longer have a retirement plan. You no longer have health insurance. You no longer have a job. You no longer have friends. You no longer have uh, a place to hang out. You no longer have social activity. You have nothing except for the people in your church. It's pretty scary. And now they've added to that, we might kill you and we will kill you, and Antipas has been killed. And somebody comes along that's referred to in our t- passage today as Balaam and says, guys, you can, you can give in to those things and be a Christian. You can kind of worship the false gods and worship Jesus. You can have sex with who you want and follow Jesus and he won't be upset with you. And some of the people within this church are buying into the lie. They're just buying into it. And sounds nice to buy into it, doesn't it? I mean, doesn't that sound like a nice thing? Like to be able to to just, oh, oh, I can have my retirement and I can have my health insurance and I can have my job and I can have my friends and I can be cool and I can be well-respected and I don't have to die and I can get into heaven someday? That sounds like a better plan. And Jesus is saying, I have this against you. And when I look at the American Christian culture today, it's the same lie that we're buying into. I mean, people are going, God doesn't really care. The Bible's an outdated book. It's written for a different time. I can do what I want. God always, this is a big one, God wants me to be happy. So I'll just do what I want. Yes, because God, Your happiness is the number one thing in God's life. His happiness is the number one thing in his life. Just to be honest with you, and he wants you. And Jesus is not happy about this. I mean, this is what they're saying. I will die for Jesus, but I will not live for him. And Jesus is not happy about it. And we're buying into that same lie. And it's probably easier to grow a church not telling the truth. I mean, I could get up here and preach week in and week out and say, kind of do what you want, be happy, worship Jesus too. I mean, we could just make Sundays in my preaching time about like, yeah, and read your Bible and pray. Have sex with who you want, worship what you want, cheat people at work if you want, treat your wife poorly if you want, disrespect women if you want. But as long as you say a prayer at the end of the day and show up on Sundays and give us some of your money, then things are great. Jesus looked at these people who are willing to die for him and says, yeah, but here's a problem. I have something major against you. You're just compromising the Christian faith with your immorality. You're doing whatever you want to do, whatever feels good, instead of doing what I have called you to do. And I think if, if the American church, if we as Christians today in our country need to hear anything, it's that Sometimes Jesus wants you to do things that aren't going to make you feel happy. He might want you to lose your retirement. He might want you to lose your job. And he might want you to lose your friends. And he might want you to lose your social activities. And he might want you to die. But he definitely wants you to serve him. Not just being willing to die for him, but being willing to live for him no matter what it costs. He goes on. Now you're like, okay, well, they're still Christians, whatever. But listen to this. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will come to you 
and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, repent, let's explain that. Repent means to change your mind about something. Repent means to change your mind in a way that it leads to a change in action. We think of repent as feeling sorry. Jesus never calls us to feel sorry. I don't think that Jesus ever wants us to feel sorry, maybe. The feeling of sorrow, not important to God. Repentance, very important to God. Very, very important that we change our thinking, that we decide to think like him about our sins and about the things we do in life, and we decide to go the other direction and do things the way that he has called us to do them. He doesn't say to these people in this church, hey, you should feel really bad about that sexual immorality for the rest of your life, and then everything will be cool. He doesn't say, hey, you should feel really bad about eating that meal yesterday. Just, just sit there and wallow in it for the rest of your life. That's Satan that says that. He says, change how you think about it. If that requires feeling bad for a little bit, sure. But as long as you come to the conclusion that it is, it is an atrocious act, sin is atrocious, and you stop doing it and live for God, then Jesus is cool with it. What he wants, I believe, from us today is for us to just go, wow, I need to change my thinking. It's not about looking like everybody else. It's not about comfort. It's not about me feeling good. It's not about that stuff. It's about doing what Jesus has called me to do. That's what he's saying. He's saying, go the other direction. And man, if he was talking to the church in America today, I just know he'd be like, time out. You people thinking. You can't, you can't just be a perfect fitting in piece of the puzzle in society and serve me. It's in, it's impossible. And this is pretty strong language. Otherwise, I will come to you. That sounds nice. Oh, wait. And we'll fight against those people who are not following me fully, who are compromising, who are thinking, oh, yeah, I can just kind of sin. And I'll st- this, is, this is how we tell the lie sometimes. Like, well, Jesus forgives, so it doesn't matter what I do. Yeah, well, Jesus might forgive, but he's going to come with a sword coming out of his mouth, and he's going to fight against you. And I don't know what that means. I'll just be honest with you. It might mean you die, like literally, physically die right now. It might mean that Jesus doesn't think you can be a real Christian, but I know it means something pretty bad. I never want to see a flaming, fiery Jesus, as he's described in next week's passage, coming at me with a sword out of his mouth saying, I'm here to fight against you. I would much rather much rather deal with the consequences of not fitting in with the world. I would much rather not have a retirement plan. I'd much rather lose friends. I would much rather not be as well-liked. I would much rather lose my job than face that. And that's the point of Jesus' words. I don't think Jesus feels the need to explain what it means. He's like, hey, you can have your trade guild Or you can have me not fighting against you. You see, there's this just there's so many like small little lies. Like it doesn't matter how you live because God's grace is big enough. Semi-true. I mean, when you sin, God's grace is big enough to cover it. But Paul says that people that think like that are anathema. That people that are just like, well, I'll do what I want. That you're not really a Christian if you think that. You're not. And the world, this American Christian culture is just full of non-Christians. 
and they're going like, I don't really need to follow Jesus. I'll just kind of pray a prayer and I'll get into heaven and that'll be good for me. Jesus saying, follow me or I'll fight you with the sword that's coming out of my mouth. Man. And not enough churches are telling their people because there's probably people in our midst right now who are compromising who are not being faithful witnesses. When the evidence of your life is stacked up, Jesus is not real. And you might claim to death. You might, you're like mad about what's being taught in science classes and you're mad about the way people are voting and you're mad because people more and more are denying that God exists and, and yet you're the evidence for it. I tell you, our church, uh, the culture of America has not turned and rejected God First and foremost, because of scientific data or because of logic. In fact, most people in my generation don't care a hoot about logic. It's called postmodernism. Logic, unimportant. Feeling important. And you know what they feel? Like your life doesn't look like anything they want to be a part of. Because it's get up on Sunday morning, talk about this guy named Jesus, but then not do it. And if we're going to see a return to Christianity in our country where churches are growing and people are coming to salvation, then it's going to take us saying, man, no compromise, no compromise whatsoever. Look at my life. Look at my life. Jesus is real. You know what we say? The opposite of that. We say, well, I'm just a human being. I want you to just, I'm not done yet, but I'm almost done, but just think this, think this. Stop saying I'm just a human being and start saying I am God's plan to show the world that he is real and that he sent his son Jesus to die. It changes the paradigm, right? Like I'm only a human, I'm going to mess up. That's true. But when we think about that constantly, guess what we do? We just kind of mess up. But when we go, man, I'm God's evidence to show that Christianity is real, it puts a lot higher standard on us. And the sad reality is in our country, we don't like high standards. We shoot for the low stuff. Don't we? I mean, isn't that the truth? Like, just kind of get by, get a C, you know, C's get degrees. Like, just kind of just do what you need to do to get by. But Jesus is like, well, you, that's not going to work because guess what? You're my plan. And he's right. He knows because signs and wonders have never convinced anybody that Christianity is real. Jesus, while walking on the earth, says to the people, like, I'm not going to give you a sign because you're not going to believe a sign. You're going to see signs. They saw signs. I mean, the man got out of the grave and people didn't even believe it. You know what people believe? You know what people are drawn to? People who genuinely serve Christ with all their hearts and don't compromise. That's what they're drawn to. And he says this thing. If you didn't think it was a big deal yet because Jesus is coming at you with the sword, listen to this. And he says this in every one, but I really want to emphasize it today. Whoever... Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is why I want you to pay attention to this today. The whoever right here is actually masculine. It's actually he. It's singular. And the idea here is that you individually play a role in what the church does. And I think too often times we're like, well, I'm just an individual. There's all those other people that I go to church with and they'll be the evidence of Jesus and they're really gonna accomplish things. But what do I do? What I do doesn't really matter that much. I mean, it's not that big a deal. Like if I give into the, don't you think like that? Because I do. And I'm, I'm sorry if I sound like it's you, 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 because it's me too. But like, don't you just think like, well, this, this sin isn't that big a deal. Like I'll just 
I mean, nobody will notice, and it's not going to affect anybody, you know. But, but this is like you, he, you play a role in what Jesus thinks about our church. That also is paradigm shifting, isn't it? I mean, if it's just you over here wallowing in your sin, just doing whatever you want to do, no big deal. So I lusted, so I yelled at my wife, so I did whatever, so I cheated that person in my business. Nobody's going to know. It's not going to affect anything. Jesus is like, hey, time out. You with ears, you should pay attention to what I'm saying. So if you have ears, then this is for you. If you can read or have ears, this is for you to pay attention to because what you do affects our church. Do we want Jesus to come with a sword out of his mouth and attack certain people next to us in our congregation, however that looks spiritually? No. And therefore, we have an obligation to not compromise our faith. And then he makes this wonderful promise. He says this, because this is the good side. This is what we live for. This is why. Because Jesus has saved us to the one who is victorious. I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Victorious, we talked about that a lot last week, so I won't belittle it, but that's what we're aiming for. We want to live the Christian life like we're trying to win the Christian life. And, and Jesus is saying, look, if you overcome, if you won't compromise, if you are really a Christian who follows me with your whole life, then I will give you victory. And he also says he will give us some of the hidden manna, Jewish People believed that God, after he stopped sending bread from heaven to the Israelites while they wandered in the desert, stored some of it in heaven. We know from the Bible that that's not true because God says the man is done now. It's over in the book of Jeremiah. But Jews thought that, and so the imagery is good for them. It makes sense to them. There will be this wonderful food that you will get for eternity. And we know that Jesus describes that as a heavenly banquet. If anything is going to want to make me go to heaven, it's really, really good food. It's Dar es Salaam in the city of Wilsonville for free every day of my life. If you've never been there, this is, this is my advertisement for them. It's the best restaurant in the world, maybe. I haven't been everywhere, but it's absolutely incredible. It passed every restaurant I'd ever been to, and I just went there on Valentine's Day. It's like Dar es Salaam for eternity, like this wonderful food, and that's what Jesus is saying. Like, hey, oh wait, you can't afford to buy food anymore? You can't go be a part of the party and the feasts and the banquets because it's part of worshiping another God? Who cares? Because I will give you for eternity the perfect food. The perfect food. And then he says this, and oh man, this is so good. I will give you a, a stone with a new name written on it. And it will only be known to the one who receives it. There's different views on what this means. The stone could be uh, like a ticket into a show. That's sometimes how stones were used. It could be connected to a Greek goddess who had a black stone. And so God's saying, I'm pure and better than that. Uh, it was actually a white stone would be used for acquittal uh, in, in the courtroom in this era of history. And you got a black stone if you were a goner. And you got a white stone if you were going to live, which would be a big deal if like, you're thinking about, you know, I'm going to get killed, like I'm acquitted by Jesus. It doesn't matter what these human beings say. But that, I don't, that's not the part I really like. The part I really like is that I am the only one who will know. And the name is probably not a name that you will get about yourself, even though that's the easiest way to preach it, and it's most often how it's taught. It's actually probably a name uh, for God. 
And God is saying, and this is so cool, it's so awesome, and it makes me want to not just die for him, but live for him. He's saying, you are going to know me in a way that nobody else knows me. Think about that intimacy level. Think about how personal that is. I mean, the God who created everything, everything, will give you a rock, and it will say something about him that nobody else will read or know. Sometimes I think I know everything about theology, and apparently I don't because I don't know what will be on your rock someday. I don't know what will be on your stone. And that makes everything worth it. I mean, that makes not compromising worth it. Jesus isn't like, just do it because I said or because it makes you a good witness, but he said, man, I love you so much, and heaven's going to be so perfect and I want you to be a person who gets into heaven. I want you to be a person that gets others into heaven. So don't compromise. Don't give in. Do what I say. Know what I say and do it. Man, for us, this is, I think, if you're not a Christian, be one. I mean, I say that every week, but wow. Like, who cares about this 80 years if you're, Lucky or unlucky that you're going to live on earth. You know, I mean, eternity with perfect food and a God who loves you so personally that he's going to tell you something about himself that he hasn't told anybody else. I mean, that's better. Think about your life. It's not that good. Even if you think it's like great right now, like you still like you're dealing with stuff. I mean, aren't you always dealing with something? And you're going to be doing that until you die. You're going to be dealing with stuff. Like, I think there's this belief, like, when I get 10 years older, like, then I won't have to deal with this stuff. You'll deal with something else. You'll be older, (laughs) you know? I mean, and and Jesus is like, for eternity, if you give me your life, if you become a Christian, for eternity, you don't have to deal with anything. You just get good food, and you get a relationship with me. If you're not a Christian, become one. But if you are, don't compromise. I don't know if we got this up here. I don't know if this statement's going to be up here. No, I'm getting the no from the back. But uh, this is the way that I'm choosing to remember it. And uh, compromise compromises our witness and our Christian faith. I mean, when we compromise, it compromises our ability to, to show Jesus off to the world. And, and I'm telling you, we know this to be true, and these are gonna be, this is going to be a blast from the past, but, but when I was thinking through this, a couple of names came to mind. Cato uh, Kalin, can you place it? OJ Trial, does that help? Pool Boy, remember him? Or how about this one? This one might come back more. Mark Furman, do you remember him, the racist cop? You remember that, and they found the tapes? And it was just the 20th anniversary of the OJ Trial, if you can believe that that feels like yesterday but but like I I remember as a kid you know I mean this was like after school programming every single day it was like Disney in the afternoon was no longer a thing we're watching the OJ trial as a middle schooler Uh, and it's true Uh, those of you that lived through it know exactly what I'm talking about and these guys had like very seemingly real testimony against OJ Simpson but they were completely and utterly discredited Cato Kalin because he just said so many things while he was on the stand that it was like, how can you believe anything this guy says? And Mark Furman, because they found a tape where he was spewing off racist slander. And now you can't trust anything the guy says, even if it's real. 
And when I look at your life, it's like, man, people are looking at you and you can say all the true stuff about Jesus, but when they look at your life, if it doesn't line up and act like Jesus and you don't look like Jesus and you don't look like a follower of Jesus is supposed to look like, then people are just gonna throw, throw out your testimony. It won't matter. Compromise compromises our Christian witness. There's this story that will begin a, a movie that I will never make, but is always in my head. And, and the story is this, a, a Jewish man, is sitting in a prison. He has been arrested by the Romans, and this would take place. This is a real legend in Jewish history uh, about 400 years prior to the writing of the New Testament. He's sitting in this prison, and he knows the next day he's going to be killed for being a Jew. And they tell him, we will let you live if you will eat this pork. Jewish people don't eat pork. It's against their law. And so in the middle of the night as the pork is sitting there and there's no guards around or watching or whatever, two young Jewish boys come up and they say to him, we will steal, we'll take the plate from you, we will take the pork, we'll throw it away. That way they'll think that you ate the pork and you won't have to die but you won't have to hurt your conscience. And the line that's famous in Jewish history is something like, what would the children think? The guy knows that eat it or not eat it, He's going to hurt his witness about the truth of Yahweh in heaven, the God of the universe, the God that we follow through Jesus today. And too often, we're just opposite of that. I mean, we're like, sweet, it's not gonna be a sin, take it, I don't care. Or nobody's really gonna notice if I give in to the sinner, it's just a little sin. And Jesus is saying to us, like, look, don't just talk about being willing to die for me, but make your life an evidence of the truth of the gospel. Our church, the Christian culture in America does not need a better plan for evangelizing. I have like many books on how to evangelize. What they need is better Christians who don't compromise and therefore compromise their ability to witness for Jesus. I mean, we don't need a better strategy. We need Jesus' strategy to be lived out and that's you saying, I am the evidence. And when people look at your life, they must if you're doing your job, they must go, wow. I know science, I don't believe science lines up with Christianity. I know my parents didn't believe it. A lot of people in culture don't believe it. Christianity gets made fun of, but that person's life suggests that it might be real. Suggests that it might, might be real. Can you imagine, just, just imagine with me. Like here at our church, small church in Wilsonville, Oregon, if every one of us approached every day saying, I will be a testimony to the truth of the gospel. Can you just picture like what that would do to the communities that we are a part of? And, and, and can you imagine what that would like do for the reputation of our church and how people would see us? I mean, they would just be blown away by the love and the generosity and the purity and the holiness and the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy that just just encompassed everything that we are and everything that we do. Jesus said so many things that people didn't like, but what did they do? They came to him all the time. They came to him. Jesus' whole plan for ministry is like walk around teaching, do some miracles in between. Bad plan would not work for me. Like I'm, I'm just gonna go walk around telling people about sin. Jesus' plan, like when he'd get huge crowds, was to say things they didn't even understand. 
<laughs> like, that's weird, right? I mean, he literally says to his disciples, like, I said it that way so that they wouldn't understand it, but you would. Bad plan. But people just came to him. They just came to him all the time, crowds of thousands upon thousands, because he lived every moment as evidence that his father in heaven was real and was loving and was true. And if we would take that approach, not say, how close can I get to the line? What's not going to make Jesus mad? What can I not feel guilty about? That's a big one, right? Like, well, I just don't feel convicted. Not that, but how, what can I do to be an evidence of the truth of the gospel? What do I need to do today to show people that Christianity is real? Everything changes. Will you pray with me, Lord? Lord, we compromise too much. Um, I mean, God, even, even what our churches are about, even, even sometimes the things we do, God, it's like, that's not even like a church thing. It's like a, it's like a social thing. I don't think that's bad, God, but sometimes we major on the minors. And in my own life, God, I know that, that I sin and I think no biggie. Not a big deal. God, I repent right now because I know it's a huge deal. Even the sins that people don't see, I know they're a huge, huge deal because somewhere, somehow, God, they testify to the lack of truth of the gospel. Lord, I pray this morning that every person who sits in front of me and the band people behind me, God, that all of us would examine our hearts Examine our lives. And Lord, if there are areas of our life that did not add up to you being real, you being true, your gospel being right, then I pray that right now we would repent. I pray, God, that we would think about our sins like you think about our sins as things that keep people away from salvation, that prevent people from an eternity in heaven ultimately can doom a person to hell, Lord. God, I thank you for the grace that covers our mistakes, our flaws, our failures. But Lord, let us not have a mentality of defeat. Let us not, let us not compromise. And God, even more than just not giving in to sin, I pray that we would think of ourselves as evidence. And I pray for every person here, God, that when we go to, to work this week, when we interact with our families this week, when we talk to our neighbors this week, God, that, that, our, that our whole goal would be to say, whether in word or deed or attitude, God, Jesus is real. God, I pray that for the people in our congregation that, that the sense of you would be so strong in their lives that, God, people would ask. I mean, and we've heard about people like this, but it should be every one of us as Christians. What is the difference in you? And God, I pray this week as we try to live out this sermon, multiple people would be asked that question. Why are you different? How is it that you handle this this way? Why don't you... And out of that, God, I pray you'd bring people to a relationship with you, Lord. Lord, people find a million reasons, a million reasons to reject your gospel. 
Let us not be another one. I pray that we would be a church, God, of, that doesn't compromise, that asks what is it that Jesus wants us to do, and then we do it. And God, that'll only happen as these individuals, us, God, me, as we, God, listen to what you are saying to these churches in Revelation. I pray these things in your name. Amen.